Welcome to the podcast of Wiser, Women in Surgery at the Emory Residencies, where we share the careers and life stories of Emory surgeons across all specialties to recognize the diverse achievements happening right here at our own institution. In this episode, we are excited to have our very first surgical scrub technician on the Wiser podcast. Jane Hallman has been a scrub tech at Emory for over 20 years. In this honest conversation with Wiser founders Vivian Wang and Carolyn Coleman, Jane covers the evolution of OR culture and provides a much-needed interprofessional perspective, especially when it comes to addressing disruptive behaviors in the OR. This episode was edited by Patience Timmy and produced by Alex Speak. Welcome to another episode of the Wiser Podcast. I'm very excited to have here today Jane Holman, uh, who is one of our beloved OR scrub techs that has been here for quite some time and has trained me since I started as an intern. So I'd like to start off by asking you about yourself, where you're from, your education, your work history. I was born in Carrollton, Georgia. I had fabulous um, mom and dad that adopted me. And by me being related to them, their names were Sally and M.L. Fisher. Um, And my grandparents helped start Tanner Memorial Hospital. Um, My mother's side of the family, her father was a doctor. And my aunt was a nurse. She was head of the health department in Carrollton. So that's how I got interested in the health field. But I kind of went a different way, and my mother was a teacher, and I ended up being a teacher. I taught school, and mainly preschool, Head Start, Montessori, and I was an assistant director in a preschool. So I was a teacher for a while, and then I got, things started changing with the education, and I got into the health field. So when did you transition to becoming a scrub tech? Um, It was in the late 70s. I did my clinicals at Piedmont Hospital. That's when they had a nursing school there. Hmm. And then they closed that. Um, Then I raised my family Mm -hmm. and I got to work as a teaching again when my girls were in elementary school. And when my youngest got into middle school, I applied here at Emory. They would not hire me, but I called every week for a year, they hired me. Why wouldn't they hire you? Well, because I've been out for so long raising my children. And the areas of surgery that you work in are primarily? I do uh, laparoscopic Mm -hmm. surgery, general surgery, uh, kidney transplants. So you were around then when laparoscopic surgery wasn't really a thing yet? Correct, and I used to work over at Piedmont Hospital. I would work with Dr. John Garrett. I don't know if y'all have heard of him, but he was an orthopedic surgeon. I, I did a lot. I did three years of orthopedic mm-hmm. surgery. That's where the ortho, that's where the knee surgery, laparoscopic, came in. Mm. We had these great big TVs. Mm-hmm. It wasn't anything like you've got now. When I worked, started working here, John Hunter, Dr. Mm-hmm. Hunter was here. I watched him and I worked with him. I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Then C. Dan Smith came along. That's how I got interested in laparoscopic. You were watching the learning curve then right. for it was, yes. all these people starting laparoscopic. How, what was that process like? 
Was it frustrating? Were you excited about it? I was excited. Was it scary? No. Well, at first, everything's scary when you yeah. first start. But I, I just, I would watch, just so watching them so, I got excited. Yeah. It was just, you couldn't, I couldn't get enough of it. So that's how I ended up doing a lot of the laparoscopic surgery. The types of surgeries you've been involved in have been evolving over time. How have you seen OR culture itself evolve in your over 20 years of experience? Well, when I first started, everybody worked together. It was it was one team. You know, you'd go into your room. The surgeons would were commit, communicate with you. The nurses, we'd all help each other. If you finished up your case you would go into another room and you'd help them out you just volunteered you just to volunteered. you just did it you know now it's like you go you can go in the lounge and you see what's going on everybody just sits down if they're not in a room i don't i can't do that i still do what i was taught mm-hmm. so how have you seen women treated in the or and how has that changed i mean in the last 20 years there's been definitely an influx of female surgeons how have you seen the treatment and dynamic of that in the or change it has really changed. Y'all have taken control as females, surgeons, as doctors, attendings, and it's just been fabulous to watch y'all. Y'all have made, I think, a difference since y'all been here. The way the team works together, I, I see, it came back what I was used to, every one of you. You know, and yes, it was a man's controlling world. Um, when I did, of course, GYN is part of my service, and all we had were male surgeons. There were no females. And now we mainly have females, mm-hmm. which I love. Jane talked about how women surgeons at Emory are leading OR culture change. She gave the example of Dr. Janavi Srinivasan. Interviewed in season one, who takes the time before surgery to write on the whiteboard what instruments she needs for her cases. That way, the whole team can be prepared. Let's put it this way. The females will come in, they'll help. Mm-hmm. They don't, the, the guys, they go right to the computer. Communication is very important. Yeah. The other thing I've noticed that works well is when you have a room where everyone's always communicating with each other, so the nurse says, I'm going to go take this specimen now to pathology. I will be back in a few seconds. Is now an okay time? And the surgeon has to be willing to hear that, number one, has to be willing to take the effort to respond because sometimes you're in the zone and you don't really want to. But it's really important because if it's not a good time, people can adapt. And then when you switch over, it is very helpful for people to announce when they're leaving and, and a break because I feel bad when I say, hey, you, and I realize that I don't know your name and... I'm calling the wrong person. And I think that also makes for a better camaraderie in the operating room. I think also if we go back to putting everybody's names on the board. Yes. It's helpful. It I have short-term memory. I cannot remember to. everyone's I names. I can't remember everybody's <laughs> name. You know, there's no way. What was the ideal surgeon described as at the beginning of your career? When you first started... And people are like, oh, so-and-so is the best surgeon. If you need an operation, you need to go to this person. What was that person described as? It's the way they communicated to, mm-hmm. with you and they talked to you. Not 
being rude, mm -hmm. you know. For an example, today there was a miscommunication with one of the oncologists that was supposed to come and take a porter cap out, mm -hmm. but they, she ended up being in a link, another surgery. Mm -hmm. So another surgeon had to come in to do this case, okay. and he was not happy. Attitude came in, you just deal with it. You but you know me, I'm going to say something. <laughs> I'll say, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you know I do. Did the surgeon have any response to that? Well, usually they'll say, okay, I know. Well, I think that's a pretty good example, actually, of disruptive behavior. And mm -hmm. uh, I was reading some research recently that talks about the fact that 98% of clinicians, and specifically you know, people who work in the operating room, have described seeing some sort of disruptive behavior in the workplace just within the past year. So almost everyone has ex experienced it. Mm -hmm. But the actual number of clinicians that are reported to be causing the behavior is only 10%. So a very small fraction of people that you work with might cause this kind of behavior, but clearly it's experienced pretty widespread. At least 35% of people in the workplace have been bullied in some manner. And the problem with disruptive behavior and trying to figure out what to do with it and try to make it better is that, it, number one, it's not well-defined. We don't have a good definition of it. It can mean a lot of things. I think the most easy situation to think about it is when some surgeon gets really frustrated in a case, they get angry, they lose their temper, and they start throwing instruments or breaking things. But it can be a lot less severe and obvious. It can be just callous and sensitive comments. It can be someone being condescending towards other someone else. What is the most common thing that you've noticed in the operating room in terms of types of disruptive behavior? There are doctors that, that we did, that nurses didn't want to work with. You ended up having yeah. to because that was your job. Now, did you notice the difference when you came to Emory versus at the other hospitals you worked at, or was that pretty universal for that time? I think, you know, I think it was universal. Yeah. Why then would you ever want to become a scrub tech or work, work with us terrible people? The atmosphere in the OR changed and it's gotten better. I mean, really, it's a big turnaround, 99% turnaround compared to what we used to do. It's fabulous. Yeah. You know, there's no, you don't hear the cussing like you used to. You don't see people throwing instruments. Mm -hmm. And if they, you do, it's it's very rare. The um, attitude in a room now, you go into a room and everybody works together. Is that what you just have those certain ones? It depends on what mood you're in when you come in too. Mm -hmm. You could have had a bad night, mm -hmm. you know? But you can get it calmed down. We're trying to prevent disruptive behaviors, you have to look at the causes of them, and you alluded to this earlier, that one of them is something intrapersonal, completely related to that person. Mm -hmm. So it could be my personality, or it could be something transient, like I haven't eaten all day. Yes, it could be. And I'm a little hangry, or I was up all night on call, and I'm just so sleep deprived that you have less control of your emotions. The second area is like you said before, the organization or the systems or the people above you that have created whatever situation you're working in. And so if you have long, long hours, if you don't have enough people to take over when you're sick and you feel obligated to come in and work, if you don't get enough breaks, 
if you're not being let out on time when you're mm-hmm. supposed to be let out on time. Um, what are your thoughts on what we can do to make that better? You can always tell when people aren't happy in the OR. Mm-hmm. That's when it starts because mm-hmm. we're having more and more call outs. Like two Mondays ago, we had six people call out. Mm. With the, there's so much call. Yeah. And what are we doing about that? They're working on it, from what I understand. On the OR Culture Committee? Yeah. Which is a fantastic idea. I oh, think. It, yeah. And um, that's why I want to get on the committee. I can't yeah. be on the UPC committee anymore, right? Because I've been on it twice. What's so, the UPC committee? Unit Practice Council. Okay. We make decisions for the OR. I see. When Jane used to be on the Unit Practice Council Committee, she helped to pass a rule allowing senior nurses and scrub techs over the age of 60 to not have to take call anymore. The surgeons had a similar rule instated beforehand, and so Jane rightly advocated the same rule be applied for the nurses and scrub techs. Well, when I was on the practice, on the Unit Practice, I said, well, why can't the nurses do that? Mm-hmm. So I wrote a proposal. Yeah. And that was five or six years ago. So nurses don't have to, when they turn 60, yeah, take call anymore. Which hopefully keeps the more seasoned nurses like you around longer because you don't get as burned out. That was to an at incentive. Least be there during the daytime to teach people, which I think is great. I love surgery. I love first assisting. I loved it all. I still do like it. I don't love it anymore because I've been doing it for so long. I'm tired, but I'm here to you know, train new baby nurses. The last cause for disruptive behavior, and if we can try and fix it, is interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. So having, if I come in as a surgeon and I have this preconception that my position or my expertise is of a different level than the ones around me, I might be prone to treat someone with less respect. How do we make that work in the operating room so that the surgeon still treats the nurses and the scrub techs with a certain amount of respect and they feel like they can also participate equally in the patient's care without it being chaos because everyone's just trying to insert their own opinion. You know, everybody has to respect each other. And when a resident comes in, I've seen this, and starts bossing them around, they get a little offended. The, the circulating nurse does, and I guess even the scrubs, but it's it's respecting people. Stop and listen. A lot of people don't do that anymore. And if they don't listen to me, I just say, excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> I've even gotten a surgeon's gown and, I, and I've tugged on, excuse me, I, I, excuse me. And then they turn toward me and I get their attention. And we start talking. Everybody needs to get on the same page. And I think in medical school now, they're starting to have medical students meet with nursing students to build that healthy relationship interaction early. Interdisciplinary. Good. Yeah. Which Good. I think is great. But I think we probably need to go beyond that and do it specifically in the operating room setting. We're doing that with the medical school. Mm-hmm. I've already done it twice. What did you think about it? I loved it. Yeah. I'd go again. Yeah. They needed somebody, another scrub. I said, I'll go. <laughs> but I enjoyed it. I think that everybody should f- go through it. What about advice for me? If I feel like the disruption is coming from a, a nurse or a scrub tech, they're just being really difficult to work with, what do I say or do? Is this after the case is over? Whenever. When, when is the right time to do it? Um, How do I do it? 
After the case. After the case. I have gone to surgeons. I have gone to nurses. I have gone to medical students. I've done, I've done them all. I mean, I've gone to all of them. It's communication right there, right after it's done. Or if you can't, you know, find, find the, I'd find you later, mm-hmm. and we would sit down and talk. Mm-hmm. Now, what if it's emergent? Like, I'm in the operating room. I need someone now. Right. But how do I displace that person tactfully but in an urgent situation I don't really have time to be like listen I can't can't talk to you about this now but I, I need you to leave and I need someone to be replacing you right now which people have done you know surgeons say I need someone in here that let's put it this way I need some more help mm-hmm. in the room could you please call Mason mm-hmm. and have her come in here mm-hmm. and um that way you and Mason can really help me out right now. Yeah. And I can get this patient safely out of the OR, out of the room. At the beginning, when you know things are going south, just getting everyone's attention and stating, listen, we have a problem. Right. This is Correct. what it is. I need everyone to be on their toes and to help me. The funny thing to me that, or striking me, is that you have this experience being a school teacher and that some of these really basic themes that it seems like you would be teaching, you know, elementary age kids, like respect and communication um, can resurface in these really highly stressful and, you know, really critical arenas like an operating room. Um, it can really go back to these fundamental skills that you also have experience in um, that can really go to the wayside quickly. Well, I guess bringing in my teaching experience into the OR has really helped. That, that has really gotten me through a lot of things. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for inviting me. I hope you don't forget about us. <laughs> um, once you've retired and I enjoying your y'all. life. I hope y'all don't forget about me. Oh, we won't. We won't. <laughs> you were one of the first ones to teach me what I was doing in the OR. You're more than welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser Podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast or send us an email at wiserpodcast at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. Thanks for your support and we hope to hear from you soon.